Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Cruel Dubai. My first guest uh, this week has made a habit of being in a seat rather like this. That's after a 30-year career in the betting industry as a clerk, a bookmaker's clerk, as an SP returner. But his interests are many and varied. He's something of an expert on all matters musical. He's a little bit of a polymath in truth. I'm delighted to welcome him to the show for the first time. He is the man who authored the excellent Skint Mob, Tales from the Betting Ring, which has had pride of place over my left shoulder for the last few weeks. Simon Knott. Simon, great to have you with us. Thanks very much for having me. I was saying, you, you've made something of a, a reputation doing something not entirely dissimilar from what, what I'm doing now. And indeed, we've, we've reversed roles in the past, and I, I enjoyed it very much. How did it all come about? You do a series called Betting Tales for, uh, for Star Sports. Yeah, betting people. Um, basically, it's been the boss, boss of Star Sports' idea. Um, the first one we did, we got Neil Channing, who Ben knew, and he said, you know, just take your camera along and talk to Neil and see... Um, you know, just get some stories from him and we'll put it online and see how it goes. And it um, absolutely flew. We couldn't believe how many people watched it to begin with. So then the idea was sort of sparked. So since then, we've done over 120 interviews with all sorts of people in the betting industry, not just, you know, bookmakers, professional gamblers, jockeys, photographers. And it's been, I've loved it. Fantastic to, to meet so many interesting people. And Neil will be along later on, so you'll be in good company. Yeah, he was the one that started it all. Thanks, Neil. And where did it all start for you? Uh, for me, I started working in the racing industry in 1989 on course with a bookmaker called Jack Lynn, and uh, just working as a floor man. In the old days, you had to have somebody that was the eyes and ears of the bookies, uh, so you stand in front of the joint and watch the prices and go and have hedge bets if you needed them. If they laid a big one, you'd go and have a bet back. Fantastic. I absolutely loved it. Brilliant fun. So how old were you then? 24. And what kind of buzz was it as a young man? in the betting ring in those days? Well, it was very daunting to begin with. Luckily, I'd been going racing on and off for a few years before, so I knew roughly what to do. And somebody in the local pub had taught me tic-tac and a bit of slang, because you use the slang a lot just because you didn't want the punters to know what you were saying. So if you said the six to four is going, all the punters would know. But if you said half arm is going or half arm on the thumb, that sort of thing, and running around, it was just the whole betting ring was a real buzz. People running around everywhere, money flying about, bets called in on credit. All the trade bets for credit bets, you just call in over the top of the punt and say, oh, it's just, I used to love it every single day of it, every minute. And, and when do you think that that sense of the betting ring being a, a lively, vibrant, vital place, when did you feel that start to ebb away a little bit? Well, to be, it started really when we started using walkie-talkies. So the tic-tacs that were still there when I started started to disappear. That was the first thing. But then, of course, the betting exchanges no need for a floor man, all the bookmakers were hedging. They weren't hedging with each other anymore, which oh. then weakened the, the strength of the betting ring a lot, which is a real shame. It's the worst thing that ever happened, really. And what about the characters within the betting ring where you were working at the time? Because you were fundamentally based in the, in the south-west and yep. west country, yep. weren't you? Oh, fantastic. But, you know, bookmakers, the, the punters, the those characters everywhere. I mean, you know, especially the professional punters used to go racing, and they were just most of them had to be a character to be that sort of person anyway. So there was nicknames for everybody, you know, it was, it was, yeah, it was you know, terrific. Who do you remember most clearly from those days? Well, most clearly would have been my old boss, Jack Lynn. I mean, he, had a, he was a, a D-Day veteran. He had a big sort of white moustache and he used to uh, use language that couldn't be used on this show. But, you know, real, real character and, you know, there were just many of them. Was it a love of racing before then as a child that made this a, a dream job for you? 
I've got to be honest, I got into racing because I got into betting. When I was first old enough to drink, the pub was right next door to a William Mill betting shop. So we used to, I used to people come in and say, I've had a Yankee or I've won five quid. And I think, oh, this is quite handy. You know, just go in that shop and come out and, and uh, get a bit of extra beer money. So I initially, and they had the, the old streamers down over the door. So it was that sort of forbidden place, you know. And uh, I got into that. I loved all that. And it was the, you know, you only had the speaker at the time. So the mystery of what was at the other end of the speaker, you saw a little bit on the TV. But, you know, that I, I got into that seedy sort of betting shop thing. And then I wanted to go racing. And first I went racing was Cheltenham, the, the Mackerson in uh, 83. And I was absolutely... I stood down with the bookies. I just could not believe what was happening. You know, just the buzz. I just fell in love with it immediately. And I never stopped. 83 Mackerson, Cheltenham. Yeah, I can't remember who won it, but I do remember everything about, you know, just the... the I just... Was, I just loved it, the buzz of it, the atmosphere, the, the money flying around, the people rushing. It's just, I don't know, I can't describe how much I was hooked. Uh, the, the adre- the, but the adre- in the betting ring, just in that. Me. Yeah, I can feel it now, just talking about it. It's like, I just loved it, and I've loved it ever since. So going back at 24 to actually work in the oh, game. Yeah, very nervous the first day, but the first bet we had, somebody came in to our bookie, and he, and he, he put four to five up, somebody came in with 500 quid, and he was, uh, you know, he wasn't a massive bookie. And I said, it's nine to ten up there, which is a very unusual price mm. to be up at the time. Eddie Baxter put up nine to ten. So my boss hopped off his stool, straight across, had the monkey back on, cop 50 quid. And Jack said, you've earned your money. The first words you spoke in, you're on the firm. So that was that. First, first thing I said to him, it's nine to ten up there. And that was that. <laughs> Does it occur to you when you're telling stories about the betting ring and becoming quite passionate about it? And, you know, I can sense the enthusiasm and passion for for gambling from you and from what it all means and do you feel that, that we as a, a sport now are, are frightened of that yes i think it's be- it's become like a dirty word you know that the sport revolves around betting and it wasn't a bad thing i mean it wasn't so much the gambling i used to bet two quids it was just the just the whole thing of it but the energy of it yeah the energy. Just the, just the, as soon as you started talking about that first yeah, day i could feel the yeah, energy yeah yeah and, and yeah, you know, it's not a, you know, it, obviously these days you've got to be careful with online. It's so much easier to come home from the pub drunk, sit on your phone and spend 500 quid playing blackjack or something like that. You know, but actually in the betting ring itself, you wouldn't take bets off of youngsters. You know, the, it's, it, was, it was still well regulated. The bookmakers regulated everything and everything was based on honesty. If I called in an even thousand pound bet, which wasn't very usual for my boss, that was just done. They wrote it in the book with a ring, Jack Lynn, thousand pound. And if it won... We went to draw. If you lost, they paid. There was, that was the thing that I loved as well. Everything was on trust. If you weren't an honest person, then you didn't have a future in the better ring. That was it. You know, honesty was, your, was the main credentials you needed to get on in the, in the business. And that was what I loved as well. It, was, it wasn't the betting. It wasn't, I never bet big. I still don't now. But it's just that, you know, and that, that, I still try and promote the betting ring as much as I can. Obviously, it's not like it was. The big meetings, it still is a bit. But, you know... Those, I was very lucky to get the tail end of the, the wonderful part of it, and I was just so passionate about it. And between the ages of 16 and 24, let's face it, you had experimented with enough different <laughs> things in your life to, to know that this was actually a pretty good way of life. Yeah, well, I started off with some pretty miserable jobs. I, I left school, no qualifications. I wasted my time. I, looking back on it, it was a bit silly, but uh, working in slaughterhouses and as an office junior and things, so I ended up joining the army in the end. And it's like backpacking in those days. You couldn't just take off. So I joined the army and spent four years mostly in Germany. So that was good. But I just wanted to be... I joined the syndicate then, MDM Racing. 
£200 a year, and I just wanted to be back in racing, but unfortunately I'd signed on the dotted line. I'd buy myself out in the end. Yeah, 200 quid a year in those days was a bit different from 200 quid a year, which is what some people are paying yeah. now to, to be part of it. I was on £20, 20 pound a day. £20 and 1p a day, actually, when I left. And, and you did 10 days of that, or more, 11 days of that into a, in, yeah, into yeah. a race horse? Yeah, MDM Racing. So, I don't remember MDM Racing. They had a horse of Rock Martin, and Rock Martin, unfortunately, apparently was used as a lead horse on the gallops, and it kept finishing second. And I spent one boxing day listening to it... Uh, running, putting in Mark coins in the telephone box, only to hear it come second. I think to the Demon Barber that ended up being a very good horse. Yep. Um, but it was great. We used to get newsletters and used to um, get on the telephone and uh, and sort of call up for the hotline and they'd tell you what was going to win. You, we didn't make any money betting on them because, of course, everybody thinks the trainers and they know what's going to win, but they don't. That was a big illustration to me then, you know. It's not like people think it is. The one thing that struck me about your book is that you, you've been this sort of presence on the on the fringe of showbiz almost or on the fr- <laughs> on on the fringe of unlikely celebrity through your career it's like a sort of strand that runs through the book uh, and at one point you find yourself in australia yeah because you wanted a change of life i wasn't gonna, i was going to say midlife crisis but it was a bit early to be a midlife well, crisis i was in my early 30s and nothing was going on and i, I just said uh, i was having a bad time living in the town i lived in so i just one day i just thought i'll sell all i've got and take off and that's what I did. I didn't have much to sell. I took off, mainly on with a credit card, but uh, <laughs> and went around the world for a year. Yeah, um, Thailand, in Australia for six months, where I landed on my feet. So what happened? How did you land on your feet? Well, it's the early days of the internet, and um, a guy on the rock, a rockabilly website said, "Oh, if you're ever in Australia, give me a call." He gave me his number. So I was in Sydney, living in a, a backpackers of like I don't know if anybody's seen the backpackers, but the bunk beds crisscross. You can get about ten people in a in a shoebox basically. And uh, so I rang him. And he said, oh, I'm on, in Bondi Junction, come on over. He said, you might know my girlfriend. I thought, that's a bit bizarre. I'm not really going to know his girlfriend. You know? So I've turned up there, and she was a, an actress from Home and Away, which I used to watch religiously back in those days. I'd watched it for years. Well, and we I all said, did. Yeah, so that was... And then um, I was invited to a Home and Away barbecue, and if anybody remembers the early days, Bobby and Carly, I was in Bobby's back garden, and she was giving me volivons, and I thought, this is very bizarre. And I hung around <laughs> with that lot for... Well, for Rebecca, which was the actress... Um, and her boyfriend Shakir for quite a long time, and I've got got some work. And he was in a band, so I used to hang around with his band and go to gigs, and we were gigs nearly every night. That was the main thing I did over there. So yeah, it was lovely. Which was not completely out of character because music was your dare I say it, your first love. Still is, yeah, yeah, still is. I love it. I write I write uh, reviews and I sort of track down old nineteen fifties rockabilly people and interview them, and that's what I love doing things like that. Yeah, music's my passion. Um, what sparked the love of 50s and 60s music particularly? I think it was just Elvis died in 1977 and all of a sudden there was all this music. Before he died, I assumed he was this guy in a jumpsuit, an old guy in his 40s, back when you were a kid and he's old. And all of a sudden this, all these films came on, Jailhouse Rock, King Galahad, all that, and you think, blimey, this is quite good, this rock and roll. And it was quite fashionable at the time anyway. So it, it was like an underground scene and then a, it, some of the stuff made the charts when I was a 15, 16, so... And I've just discovered... Keep discovering that music. There's so much of it out there. So I've wasted, or not wasted, invested a lot of money in uh, in music. Still do every every month. Don't tell my wife how much I spend on it. Well, that's something you'll never regret, is it? No, absolutely not. No, I don't regret that at all. And all the miles I used to do driving, imperative to have the, the music to keep you company. So you were essentially a manager slash roadie slash 
general dog's body for this band in Australia? No, no, I was just a hanger on really. They just, they just obviously. Uh, I was trying to build your part. No, no, there, no, but no, you no, 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 no. I was just a hanger on I was just the interesting pom. But you did experience some racing there. Yes, I went to the Melbourne Cup. Went to the Melbourne Cup when the Brew won it, mm-hmm. and Foster sponsored it. And of course, the Brews won it. Everybody saying, "Oh, mate, we should have backed the Brew." But, but I didn't back it. But Martin Pipe had a, I think, far, far, oh, I can't remember the name of the horse. And it, Martin Pipe was over. And mm-hmm. I was living in Sydney. And I saw that Martin Pipe was over. And I thought, by me, if Martin's come over for a week, he must really fancy. I think it's called Far Cry. Yeah, it was. Um, and so I was in Sydney watching on the TV. And I, I thought, blimey, I should be there. I should be there. So it's like a 13 hour train journey down to Melbourne. So I zipped off down to Melbourne on my own. And uh, yeah, went down to that. And I met some people who put me up for the night. I can't believe how friendly people are in Australia. I just landed on my feet every single time. I backed Far Cry, and as soon as the commentator said Far Cry is going well, unfortunately it broke down. But um, you know, it's a good experience. Looked around the bookies, you know, seeing so, you know, the differences there. And what did you notice differently there that you would have liked to have adopted here, or, or vice versa? Well, it's been adopted here now. Actually, there was a bookmaker I knew, John Tovey, that was going to be there, and I said, if I get to the Melbourne Cup, I'll meet you at the bar nearest the bookies. Well. In those days, all the bookies in England were condensed in the betting ring or, or the silver ring. Um, but over there, they were everywhere, outside bars, different areas. So I never found him, and he was there. But, you know, that book, bookmakers were all over the place where they would be needed. I mean, that happened now. I don't think it's really a good thing that it's happened over here because I think the betting ring should be condensed as it used to be. But that's what I noticed over there. And ladies queuing up for the men's toilets was another thing I noticed. <laughs> Given how much you enjoyed yourself there, why did you come back? Only had a six months visa. Right, You've got to be under, under 30 to have a work permit, so six mm-hmm. months was the maximum. But you never thought you wanted to live in Australia? or um, it, wasn't really, it wasn't really an option, to be honest. I, you know, I couldn't go over there to work, I was too old. So I would have had to have had a... And mm-hmm. I, I don't think Bookmaker's Floor Man was on the list of, uh, of occupations. So you slid straight back into life in, in the UK, and where did it take you? It took me to a perfume factory because the foot and mouth had uh, put pay to all the racing. <laughs> in 2001? Yes. So no Cheltenham, no, no nothing, no, Cheltenham. no racing? I worked putting bottle tops on perfume bottles. Uh, I realised what boredom was. Uh, compared to the army, the slaughterhouse and everything else you did, how did the perfume factory It was compare? OK, but it was a minimum wage, and that wasn't very much in those days. It was, uh, it, was a lo- it was easy work, but I just, you know... Luckily, the racing was off, so I wasn't missing the racing. But as soon as the racing was on again, then I, uh, I was back on course. So what were you doing then? I worked for a guy called Dave Phillips, another bookmaker. And tell me, back. tell me about Dave. Dave uh, is from Torquay. He's, uh, he's, still, he's still working now. He's, he was a magistrate in Torquay, so, you know, you had to be on your best behaviour. He was very um, forward-thinking, Dave Phillips. He's one of the first ever bookmakers to adopt the computer. Um, so we used to lug the computer on course and all the other bookmakers used to laugh at us and you know because they, you never replace a clerk and to be honest the early days of the computer they weren't that reliable the uh, tickets the first ever time we used it somebody had an even whatever it was quite a big bet four or five hundred quid something like that computer froze up so we just had to stand that bet and it got beat and we went home and tested the kit more back in his house and then uh, yeah, but it actually turned, in the end, it was very, very popular. They used to queue up to bet with us because the punters knew what was on the t- exactly. what bet they'd had. Exactly. It did make a huge difference. Massive, yeah. Especially, yeah. I'd, I'd imagine, to, to younger gamblers, it was there, what you'd win if the horse Most won people were queuing. Most people, you'd hear it all the time, how did they know what I've bet when you just got the card? You know, the clerk used to write the bet in the book with a number next to it. 
Um, people always used to be a bit dubious, you know, they might not pay me properly. But And they used to literally queue up next to us. So I remember at uh, Goodwood one day, betting next to a guy called Peter Sutton. He had all the same prices as us. They were queued up off the grass to yeah. bet with us. The next very next meeting, he had the computer. He'd seen, he'd seen, yeah. It was, it was brilliant innovation, really. But, you know, once again, the skill set of a clerk wasn't needed. You just needed a bit of tapping on the keys. So that was another aspect of the betting ring, traditional part that sort of was soon uh, gone. So foot and mouth threatened to derail you. Yeah. A big old computer threatened to derail you. Where do you go next? Well, you still needed a floor man then with the computers. But um, after, well, in 2008, I was offered a job with the fledgling Turf TV returning SPs as part of the SP returning team. So then I, and already with the betting exchanges, it was getting more difficult on course. So I sort of saw that doing it for a self-employed but as a full-time job was going to be tricky. So I decided I'd take the job with holiday pay and uh, a company car and, and all that. So and it's still when I got, went racing four or five days a week, which I loved. So you saw a slightly different side to it. You were still in the betting ring, but you were observing, essentially, yeah. and you were trying to report on it as accurately as you could. Yeah. At a time when integrity of starting prices had never come under under more scrutiny, how did you approach the, the job? Well, the, it's all computerised. It, by the time I'd started, there wasn't a huddle anymore. It was all computerised, so it is all there. I mean, there's no way you can fiddle it or fix it or anything. The, the prices are there, and the, the computer works out what the... You know, what the the current show is, what we used to send on the telephone to the press association, and then well, the off it works out what the SP is. So there is no ambiguity. That is, the prices are what the prices. You only relate to what the bookmakers are showing on their boards. Mm-hmm. You don't make them up. You know, it's a, so. So what was your essentially? What was your role? My role mainly was to be I'll be on with the computer, on the telephone informing the press association person on the other end of the line what the current show was. As there was a price change, I'll tell, the, tell them what the show was, which would then go in the betting shops. Um, and then at the off, when you press the button, read down the SP and confirm the SP. It'd be va- validated by the SP returner, mm-hmm. and then, that'd be, and then you'd, that would be the SP then, all locked into the computer, all there, transparent for everyone to see. But that brought you into contact with a, a much greater range of people in the in racing circles, I suppose. Is that what first gave you the idea to do betting people? Um, well, I, I was lucky enough, we were lucky enough to have access to the press room in those days. So, um, you know, I did realise a lot more contact with a lot of the characters then. And also I, I got to know a lot more of the bookmakers because working on course, it was still quite insular before that. But you go, we used to go around and ask for the big bets. Of course, you know, I'd speak to a lot of my current boss, Ben, people like that, and get to know a lot more people. Um, and the betting people really, like I say it was Ben's idea, but in a lot of, you know, the prof- I had no idea there were so many professional gamblers out there, and most of them won't talk to us. So uh, they don't want to, they're under the radar, you know. But it's very interesting, very interesting now because I'm getting to meet a whole range of people. I, I didn't even know what a lot of trainers looked like mm-hmm. because you never watch it on the telly because we're always at the races. You know, honestly, I've you know, been in it for like 30 years, and some of the newer trainers, I wouldn't know them if they passed me in the street back then. And now you're actually now, getting out to talk to them. Yes, anymore. and it's fantastic. You know, it's a magnificent opportunity. I'm really enjoying it. And I imagine, like us on this program, you're finding they're surprisingly accessible. Yes, I mean most people that aren't gamblers are quite keen. There's some that said no, but most people have been, you know, have been quite keen. And even though it's just me, turns up with an iPhone and a, we have upgraded to a couple of microphones now. And but you know, that's basically it. And I've been quite surprised how many people 
you know, I've said there, do it. Even Peter Phillips even did it, you know, the Queen's grandson. So that was a... <laughs> I don't know if that's by royal appointment now or not, but... Um... Well, as long as you had a pint of milk on the table for him, <laughs> I should think he was, he was fine with that. Now, I, I'd, imagine, I'd imagine that uh, if there's one man whose career you admired throughout, given where you started and, and how integral he was to that, it was, it was John McCrurick. And, and being involved with him through the later part of his life must have been, must have been quite a thrill for you. Yes, I mean the first time I the first time I went to Sand and I met I met I was one of the people that stood behind the behind him. I, I'm shameful to say and got him to sign the race card and stuff. Then years later, started working with him with Turf TV because we used to relay the prices, you know. And uh, it wasn't like he, he wasn't my mate, but we, when we worked together, he was very professional, very friendly. I used to always enjoy it when I was sent down to work on the, to do that role. So then it was lovely when I got to interview him as part of betting people. You know, went invited round to his house. Him and Jenny sort of very welcoming, you know, inviting me in. And in the end, it turned out, you know, it's very poignant, actually, for me, because he was one of the, would have been one of the last interviews, you know, talking about his, his life that we did, so, yeah. I think, um, I think we, can, we can have a little look at it now. Uh, this is Simon talking to uh, the late and much-missed John McCrory. A lot of people would um, consider you to be a rather flamboyant character with a, a larger-than-life persona, both in dress and the way you... Uh, Carry on. Do you think that's helped your career, that you've stood out in that respect? Probably hasn't, hasn't helped my career. I always wear uh, clothes that have got big pockets in them, so you can put, uh, not to put money in, but <laughs> there's no money to put it. But, um, you know, all sorts of stuff you need when you're doing your job, um, looking at the weather and all that sort of thing. It's all for practical reasons, and... Um, it's not eccentric or anything like that. It's just the people are so boring. Whenever you see people going around in dark suits, young men on stag do's and that, and they're wearing dark suits, it is pathetic. Get a life, for goodness sake, wearing ties all the time. You know, it is... I, I can't understand people conforming. Why conform to everything? Where I wear the loose clothes... Whatever's loose and you can move your arms about and all that sort of thing. So do, it, do your own thing. Don't do what other people do. And uh, enjoy life as best you can. I can't. These people who wear dark suits. I mean, <laughs> what are, that, but great from, from Big Mac there. And I, I, like, yeah. I know how much it, it meant to you to be able to do that. Yeah, it did. Yeah, it did. An awful lot. Um, and also I was, I, you know, I was hopeful at the end as well. Very fortunate. Jenny rang me. Um, in confidence and said, look, you know, it's accepted now that John isn't going, isn't going to last much longer. And she asked if I would write, um, like, an obituary or press release. He was very keen that everything was prepared for when he actually died, you know. Um, so, she, so she told me roughly what they wanted, nothing too much, you know, try and condense it, which is quite hard for a man of his career. So I did what she wanted and I sent it, sent it to her and um, I thought everything was OK. And I got a phone call about 7 o'clock, she said... Oh, she said, he, um, John's, you know, he's, he's sort of perked up a bit, she said, and he's had a chance to read what you've written, she said, and um, there's a paragraph, there's a, a sentence here, can you change that, and there's an apostrophe should be in there, and maybe a full stop there. So I did what she said, I sent it back, and about, after about three or four exchanges like that, she rang up and she said, no, he's happy with it. So he was professional right to the end, he even made sure his, a bit, you know, his obituary press release was, uh, was properly done, so... Yeah, very proud to have helped with that. And, you know, it just shows what a bloke he was. What, what was it about him that you admired so much? Well, he, he, was, always, he was always part of 
my life when I started racing, just as a person on the TV, you know, as I'm sure other people are these days, um, he was just omnipresent, wasn't he? Mm. All the time for somebody of my age. And he, he was just, uh, you know, I know he, he rubbed people up the wrong way sometimes, but he was always, you know, he said, well, my best mate when we worked with him, but he was always very pleasant. And he's just, you know, he was, he was just a really genuinely nice chap, I think, and a very, you know, like, very professional and everything, you know, he really meant everything, that he was really passionate about racing. And there's no doubt that he would have had an enormous empathy with what you were talking about at the beginning of this interview, the, the vibrancy of that betting when you first went into it, and which you, you tried to distill <laughs> in the book that you released a while back four or five there, years yeah. ago now, mm-hmm. Skint Mob. Um, it was shortlisted for the British Sportsbook Awards, which... Is is no mean achievement because this was a, a project entirely from from here, yeah. uh, and essentially from your own pocket as well. Self published, yeah, yeah. self published. It was just something I, I did for my own um, enjoyment, really. I just thought I'd write down stuff, and, and somebody read it and said, "Actually, I quite enjoyed that." You know, so we've sort of thought we'd get a few printed up. I've not sold off sold about a thousand, I think, which I'm very pleased with. You know, quite a nice thing to leave behind. So I'm working on another one now. It's a thousand more books than I've ever sold. That's for sure. <laughs> Uh, what, when you were writing it, is there anything that surprised you in your recollection? Not really. I just realised how much I loved it, and I try. I, th- I was just trying to, in a way, it was almost like mourning as what it had been, but also feeling how lucky I'd been that I was at that tail end. You know, being at Newbury with a row of Tic Tacs still there, and you know, frightening for us really because we were small-time bookies from the West Country. We didn't have Tic Tacs. We used to use the Tic Tacs, but. You know, and all these big London bookmakers taking massive bets, and we had, of course we had Stephen Little down there in our area. That was, up. but um, yeah, it was a, sort of a bit in morning really. But it's still there at the, at the big meetings. You know, it still can be. Just people go and use it more. Still get in there. There's still lots of value in the betting ring. The bookmakers bets are hardly any margin. It's so competitive. You know, serious punters do a lot worse than get back in there. You're still flying the flag. Still it's not say, a sales pitch, it's true. Still, no, I said still mm. flying the flag. Absolutely. Not, not trying to sell it. No, no. S- still saying, come racing yeah. and enjoy the experience of betting at the race course. Absolutely. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's part of the, the traditional, you know, it is, it's part of it. Look at race courses where they don't have bookmakers. Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Albasti Cruel Dubai.